Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a Pod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the Pod wherever you get your podcasts. For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series, Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com. And register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hello, and welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Evan Ratliff uh, from Atavist. I'm joined by Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer from longform.org. How are you guys going to spend your holiday seasons? <sighs> Getting out of town. Yeah. Max? Uh, yeah, I'm, taking, I'm uh, taking the kid away from New York City for the first time. Oh, you're gonna take, kidnap that child, so young. <laughs> yeah, that's you right. may never want to come back. Yeah, he and I are just we're, we're ditching town. We're going for it, the two of us. You're just gonna two po- guys, suitcase full, full of breast milk, podcasting from the road. <laughs> yeah, yeah, this is a road show. <laughs> we're going to Vegas. Me and my son, podcast by Max Linsky. Uh, who's on the show this weekend? Uh, this week I talked to Hannah Rosen of uh, Slate fame, of the Atlantic fame. Uh, of uh, many other publications, fame. Wrote that great uh, Craigslist killer story. Craigslist killer story. Uh, also recently wrote about her relationship with Stephen Glass. They were friends, uh, and she worked at the New Republic, and she kind of went back and talked to him. She wrote that for the New Republic. She also, on her podcast, sort of got, uh, she was involved in the Rolling Stone uh, UVA situation uh, due to an interview that she did. So we talked about that. Uh, it was an interesting conversation. Yeah, it's the uh, right time to talk to Hannah Rosen. This is our last show for 2014, I should say. Thanks to the audience out there. If you've been enjoying the show, we have one request of you. Actually, we have two requests. One request is that you uh, patronize all of our sponsors. It helps us. It helps them. It helps podcasting move forward. My other request is that you go to iTunes and leave us a review or rate the show. Um, It really helps the show become more discoverable in iTunes, and we want all kinds of people to find out about it. We got some sponsors. I know we got some sponsors. Yes. I heard we got some sponsors. Evan, who are the sponsors? One of our sponsors is, uh, it's a new sponsor. It's the Los Angeles Times uh, book pages. Uh, If you don't read the LA Times book pages, which of course you can find online uh, in addition to in the newspaper, um, you're missing out because they are uh, not only a place that reviews books, they also discover a lot of new voices. They've uh, reviewed books by many authors on this podcast, like Leslie Jameson, like Lawrence Wright. And uh, they're a good place to just find out what's new and what's good. So they have a um, newsletter, which is called the Bookshelf Newsletter. If you go to latimes.com slash longform, it'll take you there. You can sign up. They will tell you what books you should read, what you should not read, and uh, what you should buy for your family for the holidays. I, I'm a subscriber. I enjoy it. I think uh, I think the newsletter format is uh, well-suited to, uh, you know, pick pick a few books coming out this week, see what's going on. You're a man who likes to read about reading. I do. I enjoy I enjoy the more the more uh, metaphysical levels I can get away from, from the text, the better for me. Uh, if you're trying to get away from the text and into some new clothes, there's no better place to do it than Bonobos. That's B-O-N-O-B-O-S dot com. They've got everything from chino, denim, outerwear. Pretty much you could you could replace your entire closet with one visit to Bonobos, and you could do it at a rate of 20% off if you put in promo code LONGFORM. That's promo code LONGFORM at Bonobos.com. You'll also get free shipping both ways. You can't really beat that. You know, uh, John Mualem was telling me recently he bought something off Bonobos because yeah. of the podcast. So it's right. not just it's not just your everyday listener; it's also the guests. I got a Bonobos coat. I, I know show listeners of the show are interested in dressing like John Mualem. <laughs> if only we all could. I've actually never seen John Mualem. That sounded insulting, but it's actually just a blank comment. Uh, Max, I think we have one other sponsor, and this is a sponsor that we all want to celebrate. 
You guys, Tiny Letters sponsoring the show today, as they have done with every single show we have done in 2014. Uh, we quite literally could not do the show without Tiny Letter. Thank you. <laughs> uh, seriously, they uh, have made it possible to do this thing. Uh, not only uh, do they support us through sponsorship, but they're also like good people. I just went and hung out with them in yeah, Palm you're, Springs. You're out there on a, they take you on a trip. Hang, hang, I was hanging out with Lane, Rachel. They're yeah. great. Yeah, thanks. They're, thanks to the whole the whole Mailchimp family. Yeah, they really uh, they are making the show possible, and uh, and it is quite meaningful. If I could find a way to give them a hug on a podcast, I would do that. That's what I'm trying to do. Next right year, now. sound Next effects. Next year, okay. Here's Evan with Hannah Rosen. See you in 2015. Hannah Rosen, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm delighted to do it. So we're doing this uh, remotely, as people will probably be able to tell, and you're in D.C. And just as it happens in the last uh, couple of weeks, there have been like some big things in the magazine journalism world that you happen to be connected to. And it seemed like just a good time to talk, even though uh, we're not entirely talking about that. Are we not naming the big thing? Are we like tiptoeing around I'm, the I'm, big I was thing? trying to... Uh, <laughs> I was trying to build some suspense. People might be listening, and then they, gotcha. might, they might just pull them along. But actually, right. I actually do... none of the long-form listeners will know what you're talking about. <laughs> I, they may be surprised to learn that the editor of the New Republic is gone. They may not even know that. They may not know that there's a big story in Rolling Stone about the University of Virginia that came to involve you in in a in an interesting way. But I actually do want to talk about those things more towards the end. The thing that I most want to talk to you about is high school debate. Uh-huh. You went to Stuyvesant High School in New York. Yes. You were a top-level high school debater. I also did high school debate, and I feel like there's a there's a whole group of, like, journalist types who were involved in that activity, uh, like Jay Kang uh, is one, uh, and David Gura, who's on Marketplace, is one. And I, I kind of wanted to start back there because a lot of the writing you do, or some portion of the writing you do, is sort of argument-based. And I'm kind of curious when that started for you, an interest in that, and whether or not it sort of drove you into something like high school debate, or something like high school debate maybe like awakened in you a kind of like skill for argument. Oh, that you start at the most contentious place for me personally. <laughs> it's true that I was a high school debater. I was an obsessive high school debater. My partner was David Coleman, who wrote The Common Core. At the time, we kind of built up the Stuyvesant team. And, you know, really, it took over our lives. Like, at the time, you know, there was no internet, so we spent all our time at the NYU library, researching, traveling around the country. I mean, it was like a big part of my life when I was in high school. Yeah. So, it is true. Um, but it's funny, you should say that, but most people say you know, you should have been a lawyer. When you're debating, they say, oh, you'll be a lawyer. Yep. Oh, oh, I think of I think of the legal world as populated by former debaters, but I didn't want to be a lawyer. Thus, okay, so, so then you go from debate to essentially my first big job was my second job, but my first big job was at the New Republic, uh-huh. uh, which is, you know, the empire of the counterintuitive. So, and argument. And I feel like... I'm tortured by that legacy because because I can do it. I mean, I'm good at it. I can construct, in the sense that I can construct an argument. It's something that's been drilled into me, both for debate and from the New Republic and from working at Slate. But it's always at war with my reporter side. So it's some, something that you can do easily is not necessarily something that you connect to or want to do. You know, So The End of Men, my book, is a perfect example where I agreed to do that book on the condition that I could report each of the chapters pretty deeply in a specific location with specific people, but it didn't matter. I mean, I don't think the reporting was mentioned maybe in one review. Like, it just right. didn't matter. You know, ultimately, it's like the argument that people care about. And, you know, I'm always ambivalent about that. Yeah, I mean, that was kind of what I was getting at is I, I after participating in, in high school debate, I, I sort of came to view it as a somewhat evil activity in the sense that it sort of teaches you to be able to argue any side of some issue, even if you don't believe that, that side of the issue, which can be a useful skill, but it can also it can sort of plague you 
in a way. Yes. It's, I, you know, it's really, it's a painful for me right now because my daughter just started debating. Oh, really? This is her first year of high school. I haven't thought about debate in a really long time. And they asked me to judge tournaments, you know, not judge her, but be one of the judges of the tournament. So it's just all coming back to me in this painful way this year, you know, just hearing these kids. And you're right, completely mercenary. You take one side of the argument, like really, really cleverly, or the other side of the argument. And it rewards cleverness over passion. That's the problem with debate, right? Right, That's the problem with being trained to think in that way. And I feel like, you know, in in, in many things that I write, those two things are in tension with each other. So I try never, ever write an argumentative essay that doesn't have reporting in it. I'm not talking about a 1,200-word piece. I'm talking about a big, big piece. So my my, I would say my argumentative essays are more reported than other argumentative essays are, but but there's but I still prefer the ones that are eighty percent reporting, twenty percent argument, and you know only once or twice in my life have I gotten that down to like ninety percent reporting, ten percent argument. I don't achieve it that often. Well, uh, tell me a little bit about how you how you ended up in that big job at the New Republic or your first big job at the New Republic. What First of all, what was the what was the first one? What was the sort of way station job? And, you know, how did you get into it? What did you want to be doing? I was in Israel after college. Uh, I was born in Israel. I have a lot of family in Israel. And frankly, I was bored on my scholarship. So I started to just trail around with a friend of mine who's an intern at a UPI hmm. at the wire service. And I speak Hebrew. And at the time, I spoke Arabic, and so I would just do stuff for them. I would, like, translate for them. They would send me out to stories to do stuff. And I became much more into that world than I was uh, into my academic world. And in Israel, there's never not a story to do. Mm. There's always a story they can send you to do, protest, whatever. So I just uh, I just started writing stories, you know, not getting paid. I wasn't officially an intern, but I just started writing stuff for the wire services there. And I did a couple of feature stories even when I was there. So so that's how it started. Then then I just got back to the U.S. and wrote to everybody I had met in Israel to ask them about a job and landed. I had was offered a job either in the offices of the American lawyer. Remember when Steve Brill was starting the American oh, lawyer? It was yeah. like a place where young people went. Uh, but I didn't want to do that because it didn't um, have any reporting. It was, you know, like you, you, it was a big magazine. They'd never let you write anything. Huh. So instead I asked if I could work. This is going to sound dreadful to your listeners who uh, live in New York. So my parents live in Jamaica, Queens. That's where I grew up. And uh, I asked if I could work in one of their satellite offices, which was the Newark Law Journal. Mm. And so because I knew that I could be a reporter at the Newark Law Journal, and I asked if I could cover criminal justice, I think public interest law. And, you know, criminal justice in in Newark is is all right. You know, that's kind of cool. There's like a lot going on, a lot of weird trials. But the life itself was pretty unglamorous. I mean, I was commuting from Jamaica, Queens, to to Newark every day. Oh, so living Um, at home and working in Newark. Exactly. Mm. Living at home and working in Newark. But it was cool because there was a lot of like grizzled old New Jersey newspaper reporters working at the New Jersey Law Journal at the time. And so they taught me a lot. They taught me a lot. I would think that starting in Israel and and having that experience as being your sort of first exposure to it, that could have caused you to want to be a kind of foreign correspondent uh, type. Did it seem like an unglamorous life to you or or just not as interesting? You know, it's funny. The reason it didn't work that way um, is because Israel is like my second home. I have a lot of family there. I didn't experience it as exotic. It's very familiar to me. So, so I don't think I got that kind of foreign correspondent bug. I mean, I remember at the time when I was a young uh, uh, reporter at uh, New Republic, like a lot of people were going to Bosnia and stuff. It just never called to me. Now, when I went back to the Washington Post, when I was at the Washington Post, we haven't gotten there yet. I did go to Israel for some short period of time. And how did you how did you get the job at the New Republic? Oh, so randomly. I'm not really a New Republic type. You know, like I didn't go to an East Coast school. I mean, I went to a great college, but it wasn't East Coast school. I didn't know anybody. Um, really off the pile. That is my that is my sliding door moment. Um, <laughs> it was it was it was thanks to uh, 
I didn't really know much about the New Republic. I hadn't really heard of it that much. I was just kind of, you know, doing my New York to make a life. And a friend of mine said, it's a great magazine, the New Republic, you should apply to it. I wasn't like one of those kids who'd read the New Republic my entire life. Definitely not. Um, so I did. And Wes Kosova, the wonderful Wes Kosova, he just picked my name out of the pile. So that's really it. You know, I'm always eternally grateful to Wes Kosova for doing that. And then I started to work at the New Republic. And at that time, when you are a young person working in the New Republic, I mean, I, I pulled some of your your earlier stories from there. And did they did they sort of set you off to do feature stories right away? No, I mean, I was you know I was a fish out of water a little bit. I didn't know DC. A lot of the writing they did was political writing. It just wasn't my world, you know. Like my parents weren't from there. I was I just it wasn't that familiar to me. So. Um, so, so I, I kind of, you know, uh, bounced around and worked for a couple of different people. I worked as Mike Kinsley's assistant. Mike Kinsley hired me as his assistant because, because Fred Barnes, who was the one conservative writer on staff, had an assistant who was Ruth Chalit. <laughs> and Mike Kinsley's theory was like, like, damn, if only the conservative's going to have an assistant. I'm having an assistant, too, even though he really didn't need an assistant. Um, and all I did was, like, screw up his taxes for the next 20 years. Um, but I was his assistant. And then it was Mike Kelly who really made a point of showering the young people with great amounts of attention and teaching us how to write long form and just sort of setting us off on projects. So, you know, so I was there several years writing fairly short stuff through Andrew Sullivan's tenure until Mike came along. And he, he just was really into just focusing on us, like u- using us, you know, he, he wasn't so into using kind of big name outside freelancers. He really was interested in teaching us how to write and explore and do longer things. Hey, this is Aaron pausing Evan and Hannah quickly for a quick word from our sponsor, the LA Times Bookshelf. They've got a great newsletter. Um, you may have been uh, flooded with best of the year lists, but I think it's a much better way to handle your book reading, book reviews, to stay up with what's coming out week to week. They have in-depth author interviews, online essays, and stub- substantive new book reviews every week. Uh, I get it in my inbox, and I've really enjoyed it. Um, They also have a really good holiday book gift guide, which has 157 books. If you haven't picked out your presents this year, um, maybe check out their reviews of new titles from people who've been on the show, like Leslie Jameson and Lawrence Wright. Um, I would describe their newsletter service as like having a friend who's read everything. So LA Times Bookshelf, latimes.com slash longform, sign up for it. You'll never be at a loss for something to read. Now, I'm rarely at a loss for something to read due to my job, but I am often at a loss for something to wear. And I've thought about just ordering a whole new wardrobe. And if I was going to do it, I would do it through Bonobos. That's Bonobos, B-O-N-O-B-O-S dot com. What do they make? Just about everything. Perfect fitting chinos, denim, shirts, great outerwear. Uh, You could literally take every piece of your clothing you own and dump it in the trash and upgrade every item at Bonobos. And you could do it on the cheap by using Longform when you check out. That's code Longform when you check out. You get 20% off your first order. And of course, shipping is always free both ways. So you can return anything you don't like. No questions asked. Could not be easier. So go to Bonobos.com because you deserve to look your best, and these guys will help you do just that. Thanks to Bonobos. They've been supporting this show from early on, and I really believe in what they're doing. Here's Evan back with Hannah Rosen. Did you have a sort of goal in mind in your writing at that point? Like, I want to be writing about X, Y, or Z, or I'm at the New Republic and I... I just want to get assignments and go do stories and I'll do anything. No, I was stumbling my way towards something because I remember Mike had asked me to cover more politics in the White House. And I kind of knew that I did not want to do that. It was American culture I was interested in, like parts of America I didn't know about, you know, sort of people and places that were unfamiliar to me. That was the vague 
idea I had then, it wasn't it wasn't much stronger than that. It was still even then like narrative stuff that I'd loved and wanted to emulate, like the Executioner song. You know, that was the first book I read that I thought, oh my god, like this is awesome, this is amazing. You know, and I never exactly felt that way about political reporting, although there was plenty of political reporting that I loved and felt was brilliant. So again, it's the war between what I could do and was able to do and what I thought somewhere out in the distance, um, that kind of exploration of foreign places in America that I kind of was yearning to do, but, but didn't quite know how to make it happen. Yeah. One of the pieces I like most that I went back and read was one where you just sort of took apart Ben and Jerry's, uh, like charitable work. Oh my God. People hate that story. It's called the evil empire. And, uh, I mean, that was, that was like counterintuitive journalism to an extreme. It wasn't even a parody. I think I I can't remember how serious or unserious I was of the idea of Ben and Jerry's and the evil empire, but you know, that's, you're just making fun of kind of like, you know, early foodie organic PC culture before that was a thing. I think. Yeah. You know, yeah, that's, that's what I'm what... smelling off Ben and Jerry's. Yeah, exactly. And so it's been now uh, described ad nauseum, like all of the great people that went through TNR at various times. And because of what's happening now, you know, there's all these sort of like stories about it. There's, there's, everybody has to write something about it. But your time there, did you feel that that was formative for you, both either in terms of like your work or in terms of the colleagues and people that you worked with? It was formative for me in terms of cementing myself or thinking of myself as belonging to this community. Like I never felt like I belonged to any place more than I felt like I belonged in this world of the New Republic and young journalists in DC. Like that was the first experience I ever had in my life of like, oh, this is my home. You know, I have found my place. They talk like me. Their sense of humor was like mine. It, it just like, it was just really just like a warm, lovely, enlightening feeling. But in terms of my intellectual work, like I, I knew that while I could participate in all the intellectual debates and write any editorial and write in any counterintuitive way that ultimately that wasn't where my heart is. And I don't think that I could have uh, articulated it back then, mm-hmm. uh, but, I, but I sort of knew it, um, which isn't true of a lot of people who come out of the New Republic. You know, a lot of people who come out of the New Republic, they are completely at home in those, in the sort of, you know, intellectual debates over liberalism. You wrote recently, I guess for the anniversary thing that they put out, you wrote this story about the Stephen Glass stuff that happened and you were close to them at the time. And aside from sort of like how you felt about about him and what he did to, you know, vis-a-vis you and the institution and everything else, how did it make you feel about journalism? I mean, was that a time when you thought, did it actually cause you to question ideas about journalism when that happened? Or was it much more of an just an interpersonal situation? For me, it was much more of a personal situation. Like, I felt like he was a particular person with particular psychology, you know, cast into a particular set of circumstances, but it didn't make me despair about journalism or think about how easy it was to make stuff up. I mean, we'll come back around to this when we talk about the Rolling Stone story, but but it didn't have this kind of disillusionment with journal. It wasn't a disillusionment with journalism moment. It was a disillusionment with intimacy and friendship and, you know, self-knowledge and kind of my own sense of self-awareness. So I experienced it as much more personal than having a larger point. Um, can I can I just jump back to something else you asked me? Yeah, yeah. I realized, you know, the thing I said about the New Republic, this, this like, taps into a a particular gender debate that people have, because I have this debate with John Chait sometimes, um, because I did for John Chait what Les Kosova did for me, which is that I, like, plucked his name out of the column. You know, Mm. he's, like, a University of Michigan kid, so he doesn't, like, count in the New Republic, Yale, Harvard world as rising to the top automatically. And he'll always say that women often perceive themselves as kind of less suited to be columnists or to write opinion journalism when, in fact, they're, you know, like 
perfectly suited and should do it a lot more. Um, and men often see themselves as more suited to be opinion journalists and columnists. I mean, I remember there was a, while I was working for the New Republic, New York Magazine asked me to, to be a, their political columnist, a little known slice of my career. Mm. And I just found it excruciating. I did it for a while. I did it for about, you know, eight or nine months, but I, I really, it made me so uncomfortable. I just couldn't stand it. And I tried to report all my columns, which is just, you know, that's not the right way to go about it. And it, I, I just quit. I couldn't do it. <laughs> One other thing that I wanted to ask about the New Republic, because I, I feel like there's, you know, again, like it's sort of been uh, beaten to death a little bit in terms of people talking about it uh, just in the past few weeks. But, you know, there has been this interesting countercurrent of people talking about the lack of racial diversity at TNR over the years and what that's resulted in. And I was curious, no one, I haven't heard anyone say sort of like what it felt like to be inside that or whether working there people thought about that or noted that or didn't note it or sort of like what it was like. I'm curious if you have any, if you have recollections on that front. Yeah, I do. I mean, I talked to Tanahasi for a while about the story that he was writing uh-huh. and, um, you know, and he, he, he called us out, I think, in the right way. And the thing that's unresolved about what Tanahasi wrote about the New Republic, this is Tanahasi Coates of the Atlantic, wrote a story saying, you know, talking about the new, how he always felt excluded from the New Republic's because the New Republic had no black people, basically, is the point of the mm-hmm. story, is, um, w- you know, was it an invisibility? Is this like a Ralph Ellison, we were invisible to the New Republic? Or is he saying we were actively racist? It's Or does, does one of those slide into the other? Mm-hmm. And I told ta the story about the taxi cab story, which he, which he mentions in the right, Atlanta right. column, that, you know, we would come to the story meetings. This w- went on for about a year or two that when Marty visited from Boston, he would bring up that, uh, this, this idea that, you know, why weren't more black men taxi cab drivers? And there was, we were all just extremely uncomfortable with that story. And we understood that if you reported that story out, you would get into some weird id racial stuff. But as ta points out, none of us ever spoke up and said, oh, that's a bunch of racist nonsense. We didn't. I mean, we were, you know, 23, and this is like the boss comes and speaks. So you can see why we didn't speak up, but the fact is we didn't. Um, and so the question is, would if there had been a black intern, which was a very rare thing at the New Republic, would that have gone down differently? And I don't really know. Right. I, can't, I mean, I don't know. That. And then there are just the explicit things like the Charles Murray um, bell curve debate, which, you know, people did debate vociferously about. Right, um, right. But Tanahasi is saying that's not quite enough. Yeah. In some ways, um, the, the implicit things are more interesting. The idea that, like, there's no one there to say this is ridiculous. Right. This is ridiculous. Exactly. And that's what diversity is for. Now, I will say, um, I can't, I don't think this ended up in Tanahasi's story, but Margaret Talbot, who's my good friend there and an editor at the time, after the bell curve debate, sort of made a point of bringing in Deborah Dickerson, who's a wonderful writer who, who then wrote an essay called Who Shot Johnny? So it, so it did, you know, maybe it's the time when journalism would change, was changing and maybe we were, were behind the curve, but the whole bell curve debate did give us a consciousness about diversity that we hadn't had before then. Mm-hmm. And when did you, uh, when did you leave the, the staff and did you, did you go out just as a freelancer at that point? No, actually, um, when Michael Kelly uh, left and went to the Atlantic, and Chuck Lane was hired as editor, uh, shortly after that, and I, you know, I'd been there a long time by then, I was offered a job at the Washington Post um, because Steve Call was doing an unusual thing of hiring magazine writers. I mean, that's not usually the way one gets hired at the Washington Post. You like mm-hmm. come up the ranks of other newspapers, but he was just doing this brief experiment of hiring people who had come from different places to work at the Washington Post. And I think, you know, something cracked open for me there that maybe this was an opportunity to kind of let your intellectual mind sort of still for a while and just be able to tell stories. And so what I wanted to do then the beat was called Religion, which is like a low on the totem pole beat for the Washington Post, but it was exactly what I wanted to do. Um, I think probably like a weird and unusual thing to do, but it seemed, you know, at the time newspapers had money and you could just explore around America. That was a wave in history of, evangel- of in political history of evangelical participation. Uh-huh. Uh, there was a lot of debates on creationism. So it was a way for me to wander around and see America basically. And Uh that's how it worked. I mean, that's what it was. That and also, you know, newspapers are where 
the kind of narrative reporting gods live. It's always amazing to me that, you know, if you just work in magazines, as I do now and as, as you know, as I did, there's no real way to learn reporting. You know, it's not really, you know, people kind of figure it out or get tips along the way, but it's, yeah. it's the newspapers where that is like, you know, systematized, like where I actually picked up, you know, tech, <laughs> techniques and actually sort of how you do it, how you go about it. And while I can never have the resources of the Washington Post at my disposal, that those were, you know, great, like technical things I picked up. And were there were there particular you know superstar reporters that were there at the time that you? Yeah, I mean, so so Kate Boo and Lorraine Adams were my friends, and mm. David Finkel, wow. um, who sat across the hallway, and then Anne Hall sat right behind me, and that's like there's all the narrative gods of our generation yeah. right there, and so um, so so they were all like my contemporaries at the Post, and I just you know in in, in magazines you you really just kind of wing it right, like you're a kid at the New Republic, they send you to go talk to some congressman or go report a story. And you're really, you're just making it up, right? And, and you know, hopefully you have kind of a natural curiosity and you're thorough and responsible. And so you, so you do a pretty good job, but you're on your own. At a newspaper, you're not on your own. I mean, you've got a, you've got a team of people and a long history and lots of people you can ask. And so, man, I learned so much from those guys, like so much from some just like watching Ann Hall kind of go from conception of a story to sort of finding her characters to kind of just that quiet, long observation that they do. I mean, each one of them had their own style, like Kate Booz was more sort of activist passionate in a way, you know, that she hmm. she would start with, you know, stories about the poor that she wanted to tell and then figure out how to turn them into narratives that people would like listen to and, and pay attention. I mean, she was always drilling the same subject. You know, Anne Hall was more like anthropological, but she was extremely observational. So, you know, how you would just like watch things unfold over time and the kind of patience she had in reporting was completely new to me. Um, and then David Finkel was more, he would sort of engineer situations almost. His stories almost had like a gimmick or a setup and then he would work within that. Um, so, so, you know, everybody had their hmm. own style, but that was and then, you know, the the final thing was I was there through 9-11, and like we've seen in the Rolling Stones story, when the Post is reporting like a news-driven subject, you know, they really know what they're doing. I mean, like, here's your team, yeah. here's your editors, you know, here's your researchers, here's how you dig up names, here's how you make the lists, you know, here's the pace of how the thing unfolds. So all that was, you know, just just really invaluable. And of those, like looking at all of those approaches and being surrounded by that sort of all-star team of people, what do you think your style is? Like if you were now uh, working alongside you and yourself and describing that style, what do you think yours evolved to be in terms of story development? It's interesting. It's like a hybrid of the, the magazines and the newspapers. It's like a hybrid of... So, so my favorite kind of story is a story where you take something extremely unusual and odd, mm -hmm. um, like a story about a transgender kid that I wrote in, in the Atlantic yeah, or my story life. about That's... the Craigslist murder. Yeah. yeah, Boy's Life or about the Craigslist murder. And so you take a situation that's inherently interesting. It's just weird and interesting. The way you report it is that you you kind of are very patient, like if you take the transgender story, the, that you realize Unlike in radio, say, in radio, what you're looking for is a good talker, someone who can tell you the experience that they went through. But I think the best thing for me is if you can find someone like in a boy's life who's actually going through that experience, mm -hmm. you know? So when I was looking for a kid to profile who was going through the transgender experience, meaning he, you know, was born a boy but had felt himself a girl and was a pretty young kid and, um, you know, trying to figure out what to do, there were just plenty of parents I met who could tell me what happened happened, you know? Mm -hmm. But the reason, like, we went this, and then there was his birthday party, and that's all pretty good. But, like, the kid I was looking for, and the reason he was golden is because he was actually going through it. I was watching him go through it, you know? And so it's not like the parents' memory and narrative that I'm relying on. I'm, like, watching it. So I can, you know, I can see their reactions live and see what's happening live. So, you know, you take a story that's unusual. You take a situation where you have the opportunity to kind of watch it unfold in real time. And then that situation illuminates something about our 
our regular lives or, you know, the condition that America's in today, or in the case of transgender, the transgender kid, it illuminates a lot about our shifting ideas of gender and biology. Yeah. In the case of the Craigslist murder about, you know, it's a kind of how the other half lives and the sort of intimacy of relationships that are cobbled together versus just, you know, traditional family relationships. So, yeah. so it's like, so it's like that. It's like an oddity of a story that is married to an idea. Cause like I said, I can never just like rock the ideas part. It's really hard for me to just tell a story. Like even in the Steve, when I wrote about Stephen Glass, like, you know, that could have been just a story about me and Steve and like my coming to terms mm-hmm. with him. Um, and I wouldn't say I did too much of this, but, but still there are ideas in there about, you know, forgiveness and change and how we know people have changed. And, you know, it's not, like a, a lot of it, but but it's in there. Yeah, and and you covered a couple things there, but I think a boy's life story, the story about the tran- transgender child, that what makes that story so powerful is that you're there at the moment that the parents make the decision, you know, yeah. sort of how they're going to to confront this and what they're going to let their child do. But it's hard to tell from the story, like how much you had to be there in order to to be there for that moment, like. Was it a kind of thing where you you spent months and months talking to them and then sort of like realized that now you've hit the point of the story where you're ready to tell it? Or did you sort of plan ahead and luck into it? Like, how, how do you how do you arrive at that moment with them? Yeah, I mean, reporting is just so much. I mean, I, I often think of reporting as like dating or even like speed dating. It's like you... I mean, you're looking almost for someone that, like, there's a spark there between you and them. And sometimes that happens, like, right away, and sometimes it takes forever, you know. And in this case, um, I had talked to dozens of parents. I, you know, I'd worked hard to get, because this is very private situation, so I'd worked hard to get doctors to introduce me to families mm-hmm. and talked to tons of families on the phone. Um, and a lot of them already, you know, I'd heard the same story. Like a lot of them knew the language already. They kind of had been in this, especially now because people connect on communities on the web. So they had a certain idiom down, a way of talking about their kids. And then I went to this conference. There happened to be a conference kind of a month and a half or so into my reporting where I met a lot of the families that I had been talking to on the phone. And then I, I sort of, I, it was like, <laughs> then I spied him across the crowded room. <laughs> It was literally like that. I like looked at this family. They looked totally different from everyone else. You know, it was clear that they like didn't talk like everyone else from when they raised their hands and asked a question. Like they asked in a kind of un-PC way. You know, mm-hmm. they didn't have it all down perfectly the way everybody else. And so it was clear that like during this conference that 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 something was going to happen to them. They'd never seen or been around people. They were from a small town. A lot of people whose kids were going through this. This was just like brand new to the kid. It was brand new to them. So I would say I got lucky, you know, like I attached myself to them immediately and just like practically slept in their room. Literally. Like I went to their hotel room and just like hung out with the kid. I just like, you know, like, I love you. Like, I just want to marry you. You are the person (laughs) I want to marry. It's like that, but it doesn't always happen that way. And uh, since you used a, a sort of dating analogy, what's your sort of come on like with folks like that? Like, does it come more from a, I want to listen to you or your story deserves to be told? Or is there a sort of a, an approach that you, that you generally take to try to get those people to, to love you back? I think people are like, would be totally freaked out and scared if you started that way, you know? <laughs> so, cause I think like they really don't know what you're talking about. Like yeah. lots of people don't read long form, whatever, long form, you know, whatever. They don't read journalism like that. They just don't know. They understand about TV cameras, you know, mm-hmm. that someone could like do an interview for you on a TV show or you can be invited to go on a talk show. But the idea that you're going to spend a lot of time like observing and interviewing people as a subject for a story is extremely bizarre and an unfamiliar idea. So you don't really start out by saying like, I'm going to hang out. (laughs) I'm just going to like stalk you for the next six months, you know? Um, So with a family like that, I start out slowly, like, hi, I'm a reporter and I'm coming to talk to lots of family. See, I don't say I love you. Yeah. It's just like saying I love you on a first date. So it's just weird. So you, so you start really slowly. It's like I, you know, I'm here and I'm a writer and here sometimes I carry a copy of the Atlantic with me. And this is, you know, this is my magazine that I work for. And can I talk to you guys? You know, you have to see if they're 
reflective, if they're friendly, if they're open. I mean, there's a lot of things you have to determine. It could be love at first, but they could be all wrong anyway, which is really heartbreaking, you know? Yeah. So, so you have to see. And then, and then I just, I just keep at it. Well, I want to know one more thing and I want to know one more thing. And can I come visit you at home? Because I want to know this thing. And then I find out what things they're doing. Like, oh, you're having a meeting with the school. How about I come with you to the meeting at the school? You know, oh, you're going bikini shopping. You know, it'd be great. It'd be a great detail in my story. And then, then once I've like acclimated them to the idea that I'm not going away and that I'm interested in lots of different details, then I kind of lay it on them, you know, maybe in the third or fourth meeting, like, look, here's how it works. Here's other stories I've written. I'd really think it's important. I do that. This is, I do, they give my relationship speech, like this is important, you know, here's what you and I mean to each other. Um, But I don't do it on the first date. So when it comes to these more uh, argument-based pieces that you do sometimes, uh, when, when one of those is about to come out, do you, uh, do you sort of uh, like to throw it in the world and, and duck, or do you sort of like, uh, steal yourself for a week's worth of arguments? Like, what are you expecting when, when one of these pieces actually hits? I wish there was more in me that was, you know, that was just like enjoy, like the joy of combat. If I had the joy of combat in me, um, I have, I can get it at rare moments. And, you know, I think the older I get, the more I can relax into it, but mostly I duck for, I want to duck for a little while. I mean, the case against breastfeeding is an interesting example because I knew at the time, I, you know, I was full of rage about, you know, the sort of being stuck at home and I, you know, just all the sanctimony about breastfeeding. So on the one hand, I connected so totally personally to that story mm-hmm. um, but then it comes out and it's just people hate you for a while you know I mean you just like stir up this hornet's nest and it's just awful and um, and but but that one I've sort of come back around to because now all I hear is like that's my that was that was my greatest gift feminism I feel like because you know that's a that year after year I always get reliably every year you know a few dozen not a few dozen maybe like a couple of dozen or a dozen of emails from women saying like you saved my life I couldn't breastfeed or I had to go back to work huh. or whatever um, so, so so that's one of those that gets passed around between women it's like thank you thank you even though at the time you know there was like even celebrities writing on my first feed about what a monster I was <laughs> Um, the end of men is more complicated because there are parts of that argument, which I feel just so passionate about. And there are parts of parts of that argument where I'm just pushing it a little bit too far, Uh you know, or I'm not pushing it a little bit too far, but I'm like, you know, it's, I'm like, I I have to do some shenanigans and that's basically like at the top, you know, talking about women at the top and what's going on with women at the top. But like my general cultural arguments, like I just, I feel so like I, I I will, I can talk about them forever. You know, the sort of men, the the certain classes, men out of work arguments and the way, you know, women have become heads of families and how if you look in the middle of America, it's like switched upside down. You know, that stuff I can talk about forever, but I feel like the other stuff I have to just sort of like tiptoe and, you know, and I, and there was the rage on that, you know, this, it remains like I never, (laughs) I never never went away. There was actually a, there was a story on the front page of the times this morning about uh, men being affected by the economy. Yeah, I mean that's an easy one. Like there is there is a kind of heart of America argument you can make where it's not just that men are out of work. It's like it's so profoundly shifted what people's roles are. The heads of family who raises the children. It's like a really 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 different country than it was thirty or forty years ago. Right. Um, and deep in its conceptions of gender and mostly in red states is the great irony of it. Um, and it leads to lots of like reaction and backlash. And I mean it's very revolutionary when you publish a story like that and then and then the book with with a with a title like the end of men it seemed like you looking through the way people reacted to it I mean, you get a lot of people who literally are just reacting to the title yeah that's taking it too far and like i don't believe in the end of men i believe everyone can be pulled up and things like that and there's a sort of double-edged sword of like a great thing about a title like that is it makes you want to pick up that book and the bad thing about a title like that is like it makes a certain type of person want to dismiss it without actually reading it. 
Yeah, uh, I, I'm still not settled on what I think about that. Um, you know, so the title was not mine; it was my editor's title. The Atlantic is very good at those uh-huh. kind of, you know, <laughs> like slamming titles. I actually didn't really see it or the cover until it came out. I have or have had a lot to do with the Slate editorial process over the years. Like yeah. I've been an editor, I edit lots of things, but I have nothing to do with the Atlantic editorial process. So, so then it comes out, and then it becomes like a meme, right? That 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 means something if you say, "Oh, there's an end of men plot in that." TV show or whatever, people kind of know what you're talking about. Um, so I debated about whether to, to, to give up the title for the book, and I ultimately decided to keep the title. I think, I think it's kind of a good title, and I think you have emotional reaction to it as opposed to intellectual reaction to it, which I appreciate. But then that debatey thing, you know, that debatey mercenary thing we were talking about is very present in that title in a way which I don't I don't really like. So uh, someone even picked up on in the in the acknowledgments, I think that you said something like your son doesn't like the title or you have to explain it to your Yeah, he hates your the son. title though. He was very insulted exactly. I mean what would you call the book? The Rise of Women? I mean that's boring, you know? <laughs> The I guess you could do like the end of men question mark. That seems so uh, like you might as well go all the way. <laughs> you might as well go all the way sometimes. You know, I, would it have been in Orange Is the New Black? Like, would, 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 you know, if it hadn't been if it hadn't been called the end of men and had like a yellow and pink cover? I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm not sure. Um, well, you uh, you mentioned Slate, and so now you have this sort of you senior editor at Slate and senior editor at. Or are you senior editor at the Atlantic? Or you, yeah, but what is that? Doesn't really those, those titles position, right? are sort of quite the opposite of what I do. Yeah, so I don't really know what they mean. You know, I'm a writer now, mostly at both those places. Uh, but then you can also must you be able to be able to freelance between that because you had this New York magazine story not very long ago. Yeah. So the so, <laughs> so the setup is I I mostly work at the Atlantic. That's my main job. Um, I, I have had different relationships with Slate. Um, now my relationship is slight. I mean, I do the Double X Gabfest, the podcast, and I write, but pretty infrequently. Like, I don't write that regularly for Slate. And neither of those jobs precludes my freelancing as long as I, I it's not, you know, I don't take the idea to the to the other place first. Yeah. That's the rule, Got it. more or less. And so the New York Magazine piece was not my idea. Somebody came came with me to it. And I was thinking a lot about um, autism and Asperger's. I have a middle son who has Asperger's, which I have also written about at the time. It, it was proposed to me a year before I actually wrote it. Um, and so I was very interested and, and said yes. Yeah. And while we're on that that piece, I was also curious about the the mother talking to you. The mother, you can probably sum up the story better than me, but, you know, attempts to kill her child. And how did you get her to talk to you? She was in jail already. Um, so I um, I had been corresponding with her by letter for a good part of the year, mm-hmm. uh, and she she didn't she didn't want me to visit in the early part of the year. And uh, actually, I got the advice to you know how, how do you get people in prison to talk to you? Now I've tried, and it's worked in different ways in different times. But um, one suggestion he had was you know through the families, try and ask the families. And um, so, I, so I called her husband, and I called a lot of her friends consistently. Um, these were the people who were visiting her, and so so they knew that I really wanted to talk to her. And the other outlets were TV people, so I just kept writing mm-hmm. and writing until finally they you know pleaded my case. And I still couldn't visit her until she was about to plead guilty or had just pled guilty. Um, so she had to, I think she needed some closure about what she was actually going to do before she talked to me. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting because at the very end of that piece, she basically says like part of her sentence, she will not pursue publicity and she will not write uh, about her situation anymore. And uh, that's all wrapped up in the story is her potential for like attention seeking and that sort of stuff. Yeah, that was a surprise to me. I mean, the sentencing hearing was so tragic and depressing Mm. for her. I mean, I often think that, you know, people think there's magic to reporting, you know, like Woodward, Bernstein magic. But but a lot of times it's just common sense and luck. You know, I really do feel that way. Like you can get really discouraged. You know, you can be discouraged with this woman. Like I wrote her for a good part of the year and then suddenly it was like, yes, come now. 
but that was after months and months of having nothing. And so, I mean, we haven't talked about this story, but my sexting story, which I just wrote for The Atlantic, uh-huh. um, when you read that story, it looks very neat. Like, oh, here's a girl who was on the page. Oh, here's the police talking to Hannah. It was like impossible to get any of those people to say a single word to me. And I had to like, you know, hustle and go through Instagram accounts. And, you know, it's just like anything I could think of to get anybody to tell me even one little tiny thing about who was on the page or what the police were going to do. So you just like bang your head against it. I mean, I think like I've talked to the, the Washington Post reporter who's been reporting the Rolling Stone story. And again, it's just persistence, persistence, you know, <laughs> common sense and persistence. So with the woman in prison, you know, persistence, persistence, persistence. Yeah. Finally, she says, yes, I get on a plane. Um, and then I just know that I need the whole day because unlike other stories, I can't really call her back to clarify things because <laughs> right. she's not that reachable. So I just set aside hours and I make myself just, you know, I prepare with like pages and pages of questions. I think really, really hard about, you know, all the different theories of the crime, you know, all the different questions. I ask her the same question sometimes, you know, five or six or seven times. You know, I have long tapes of those interviews and I, it's going to take me a while before I ever listen to them. So there are parts where I'm just sobbing and weeping, uh, you know, just out of just sympathy and awfulness for the whole thing. I mean, that was an interesting experience. So the, now we're, we're talking about reporting and you brought up the, the Rolling Stone thing. So there's so many terrible aspects to what's happening. I've had Sabrina on the podcast before and would do so again. I feel bad because of the situation she's in, regardless of how it came about. I am curious, I listened to your, the podcast again this week, and you talked about it a little bit, but that you had her on the podcast and you started asking about it. Were you asking from a sense of like, something's not right here, or from a, a sort of curiosity about, how did you do this story? Well, let me let me just explain. Can I set this up a little yes, bit? Yes. I mean, what happened was I read her Rolling Stone story. I was actually at the Miami Book Fair with Frank Four. Um, we were talking about talking about the New Republic book, and we were both out there. And I thought, oh, this story is going to be huge. I'm just going to send her. Like I tweeted at her and sent her an email. Said, will you come on the podcast? But I read the story really quickly. So she said yes. We arranged for her to come on the podcast. And then the night before the podcast. You know, I'm preparing to do the podcast, just as I'm sure you did for this one. And I'm reading her story really closely. Mm-hmm. And I just think, like, holy shit, like, <laughs> this is that there's just something wrong with this story. Like, I just, like, felt in my bones there was something wrong with the story. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't know what to do because a podcast is a promotional format, right? It's right. a little bit like what you're doing with me. It's like a gentle, you know, we talk to each other. I find out, you know, is this amazing? How to do a reporting? What do you think is going to be the implications? It's promotional. Right. And so I was more worried, like, what the hell am I going to do? Like, if we record early in the morning, <laughs> you know, it's late at night, you know, I, I just can't do a promotional interview. Like, nothing in me will allow me to get up the next morning and just, like, go through the motions of a promotional interview because I deeply feel like something's wrong with the story. What what you feel like was the thing that flagged that for you? The first, well, two things. One was just a kind of technical question of why isn't there a sentence in here that says, you know, we tried to reach these guys, we tried to reach the frat. You know, I, I figured I just missed it the first time because right. I was reading quickly, but it wasn't in there. And then the second thing was I, I had seen her on Judy Woodruff and I, she did a ton of media and she kept saying on that media, oh, this is the norm. This happens everywhere. And, like, my brain just couldn't take that in. Like, I could take in that this happens, but not that this is the norm. Mm-hmm. And I, so I just wanted to know, like, in this story, are you saying that these guys are, like, outlier gang rapists? Or are they just, like, Joe frat guys? Mm-hmm. So that's why I kept pushing, like, who are these guys? Like, what do we know about Drew or any of these guys? You know, it wasn't just the technical questions. It was more like, what are we saying? Right. Like, are we saying that, you know, it seems important to understand, like, are we saying, like, any frat, any college, this is just what goes down? Or, like, this is crazy what went down, you know? So I just couldn't figure out who the guys were. And I was really, like, pacing the floor in my house. I was just like, what am I going to do? <laughs> and then, you know, the second question was the question of those friends in that second paragraph. Like, right. once I actually was reading really closely, I was like, oh, shit, she, it doesn't sound like she spoke to those friends. And those quotes were very ABC after school specials. I wrote, they were very like, I don't want to go to the party. You know, it just seemed like I just couldn't, I don't, I don't, I didn't have even couldn't articulate this much. Now we know a lot of what we know, but I just, it felt wrong. And I just felt like trapped because I had to do this interview and I didn't know what to do. Uh And so, 
I just got in the next morning and said, and just started asking the questions, you know, not as like, I'm going to out you or anything. I just was like full of just kind of like anxiety and fear and just nervousness about the whole situation. So like now you listen to the podcast and I, you know, sound all like Brenda star, um, you know, like I, but I, it was, it was, it was just the setup was so uncomfortable for me. So I did that podcast and then there were other suspicions and then I just like reported as much as I could, you know, and I'm like, obviously several weeks behind the Washington Post reporter, but just talking to the activists and just trying to figure out what the deal was. Yeah. And are you still doing that now? No. The Washington Post has sort of shaken out a lot of the details. There'll be a few details more. And then, you know, at some point we'll hear from Jackie, maybe, and Sabrina, maybe. And that may be a while from now, or that may be very soon. And, you know, no, I feel like I'm played whatever role I'm going to play in the story. And, you know, I felt like once I did that podcast, then I felt like I needed to follow it up right. with some stuff, right, you right. know? So I tried to call the front. You know, I did whatever reporting I could do. And this is, again, the difference between, like, newspapers and their sort of fabulous experience and resources and what magazines can accomplish uh, in the in a short amount of time. But, um, but no, I don't think I want to do any more. And now there's, you know, a lot of great writing about the implications. Yeah. And, you know, it will all come slowly out. I mean, it's intriguing to me because it's, you know, the way that she on the podcast was describing, you know, finding that story, it's actually very parallel to the way you described finding the transgender kid for a boy's life, that you're looking around for, like, the right example that's really going to convey this story. And how did she end up with this example that went so terribly wrong? I feel like that's the question that is still no one really knows the answer to. Yeah, I mean, I guess that is a thing that you have to struggle with often is is the situation that I'm describing for the lead of my story typical enough, you know? It's like it's a, it's always a it's always a kind of war within a reporter. You want it to be sensational enough to be interesting or full of enough details to be interesting, but also typical enough to say something larger than this one thing itself. Stories are better when they're not just about the specific thing that you illuminate or specific person, but that we can all emotionally connect to them and draw meaning from them. Um, so it's better if, if they're universalizable, which is probably not a word, but you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Right. I don't know. That might be a word. The thing I don't understand, which maybe will come to light, is I don't understand why Rolling Stone is letting the Washington Post be the ones to report this out. Like, they say now they're reporting it out, but... Like, if Rolling Stone just went and did all the report, whatever reporting got missed and whatever went wrong and came out and said, this is what went wrong and here's what really happened and here's what we found out, I feel like that would be the thing that would sort of save it all in a sense. I mean, maybe some of it can't be saved in terms of credibility and that sort of thing. It was sort of baffling to me that after that podcast, the next day there wasn't like something from Rolling Stone saying like, here's what actually happened to like get out in front you of You know, think about the happening. emotional work that would be required to do what you're doing. And I say this because after Steve Glass, you know, even now, all these years later, you know, people are angry at him. Why didn't you come clean right away? Why don't you tell us right away, mm -hmm. you know, what you did wrong? I, you know, again, this is like, this is the ultimate point of my Steve Glass story because this takes time. You know, it takes time. It would take time for Sabrina to admit or, you know, say, okay, maybe there are holes in my reporting. Or I didn't do a thorough job or I didn't call the friends. And then to kind of brace herself, she's the one with the phone numbers, you know, to go through Jack, to go back to Jackie, which maybe, you know, I'm sure she, she's done, you know, re-report it. I mean, why would Rolling Stone wouldn't be able to find them without Sabrina's help? I just think they could never pull that off as quickly as the Washington Post did. Now, they yeah. probably could pull it off, but it would take a while. And in and, and this story, nobody has patience for that. Everybody just wants to know, you know, what the hell happened. Um, and so, you know, at minus the Washington Post reporter, maybe they could do it. And, and you know, I'm, don't you think there'll be another, like, mea culpa? Here's what we have verified that matches what the Washington Post has reported. Here's what went wrong. You could call these, like, two of the more talked about, like, between Stephen Glass and this, like, talked about journalistic ethics things to have erupted in the last like 20 years and you you have some role in the two of them i don't mean that in some sense of like impugning your own ethics but i know do you, do you kind of say like me? what is what's up with this why am i <laughs> why am i connected well, you know, to people ask me like were you suspicious of that rolling stone story were you primed to be suspicious because of 
Stephen Glass. And, you know, maybe I'm dense. Like, I didn't think of that. But it must be true at some level. Like, I'm not like a suspicious, paranoid person at all, like by temperament or by nature, not at all. But surely the fact that, you know, I had my friend, my really great friend in the office, like, and then I was in charge of, you know, like all of us at the New Republic, we were given a stack of Steve Glass stories and were told we report this, you know, so you'd call one thing after another and it didn't exist or it wasn't there and we get to write up memos, all of us. Mm-hmm. Um, and so surely having had that experience, at least it's in the realm of the possible for me. Like, at least I can see that that happens. And that can happen. And, you know, you can read something in the printed page in a magazine. It could be completely made up or, you know, that, that I have, you know, I have gone through that process maybe just makes me understand that, you know, that's a possibility in this world. Right, right. Hopefully now you can get back to your own reporting and own stories and, and uh, not, be a, not be a media uh, media reporter, as you sort of exactly. been, been for a week or Temporary two. Temporary media reporter. <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks so much for taking the time to do this. I really appreciate it. Oh, yeah. It's like a therapy session. Like, when, when does anyone <laughs> let you talk about your process or whatever? It's completely fun. Thank you. Although now I'm worried that I didn't ask you the hard questions that, that I should have asked, that I'm just, I'm lofting you these softballs, and actually I should have been digging into one of these stories and figuring out what was wrong with it. Yeah, no, I know. It's like some, I think one of the, one of the um, media deconstructions described me as like a dog with a bone on the podcast. And I spent a while trying to figure out if being like a dog with a bone was, you know, a compliment or an insult, or is it good to be like a dog with a bone? But anyway, as I said to you, it wasn't exactly intentional in that way, but you know, okay, I'll take it. Dog with the bone. (laughs) I think for a reporter, that's a positive phrase. Okay, good. Yeah, that's what my friend said. She said, you know, like if someone described you like that at a party or on a date or something, that would be just weird, but as a reporter, it's fine. (laughs) All right. Well, thanks again. Sure. Thank you. That's it for this week's episode of the Longform Podcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks for Hannah Rosen for taking out the time to talk. Uh, and cover that much ground with me. And uh, thanks to our sponsors this week, uh, Tiny Letter, Bonobos, and uh, the LA Times book pages. Please patronize them all. And uh, this is our last episode of 2014. A special thank you uh, for a full year's work to Jenna Weiss-Berman and to our intern, Rachel Mabe. Jenna is our editor who uh, every week does an incredible job. And uh, we thank them both. And we'll see you next year. (laughs) 